Fuckers. Welcome to No Prize From God, episode 37. No Prize From God features conversations with creative people about belief, unbelief, and everything between. I'm your host, Ryan J. Downey, and my guest this episode is Dara Malloy, a self-described Celtic monk, priest, and druid who lives on Enos Moor, the largest of the three islands that make up the Aran Islands in Ireland. He talks about his journey from Catholicism to the Celtic spiritual tradition. Remember, you can keep up with No Prize From God at noprizefromgod.com, keep up with me at ryanjdowney.com, and support the podcast by leaving a five-star rating and writing a nice review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your preferred podcast platform of choice. So here it is, my conversation with Dara Malloy. This is No Prize From God. became aware of you and your work you seemed ideally suited to no prize from god i i I figure you know make the thing that you wish existed you know make make the podcast that i wanted to hear and have the conversations with the people that i would like to talk to and that i think uh, like-minded folks would want to listen to so uh, uh, it's been it's been everything i i wanted it to be so far it's been really great just talking to people all across the spectrum of belief and unbelief my family on my father's side uh, were Irish Catholic immigrants to America, you know, a few generations back. Uh, My mom's side, we have Irish and German, and uh, my mom was a Presbyterian. So my dad, he's 81 now, he refers to himself as a recovering Catholic. You know, having those traditions in my spiritual and literal DNA, you know, those are things that I'm always hoping to explore uh, with more depth and not always making the time to, you know, or having the opportunities to do so. You know, it's, it's a culture and, and traditions that I've always been fascinated by and, and feel an obvious literal and figurative kinship with. So knowing what I do about your particular journey and specifically where it's led you now, absolutely. I mean, it would be fascinating to me anyway, but it really is just so squarely in my wheelhouse that I'm really excited to shut up and, and let you tell me things. So <laughs> <laughs> Very good. why don't you, yeah, walk me through, um, 
a little bit of uh, kind of where you started in terms of belief and practice and, and, and how that's evolved. Okay, well, I think the first thing I'd like to say is that you, you and I are both lucky in that we have this Irish heritage and you still have it even in your name. You have it in your first name, Ryan, and you have it in your second name, Downey. I have it in my first name, Dara, and I have it in my second name, Malloy. And if you just dig into those four words, you're going to find treasure because it's going to bring you back to an ancient heritage. Some of it early Christian, but a sort of a Celtic version of Christianity, and some of it pre-Christian. So I just want to start by saying that because I think that's something maybe you might like to explore in this conversation. Um, so I'll just leave that hanging there for a minute and we'll, we might be able to get back to it maybe. Yes. Um, like Ireland, people generally, I think, are aware, has been a very Catholic country. Um, when I was growing up, we were 95% Catholic. Everybody went to church on a Sunday. The churches were packed and you had five or six masses every Sunday, all of them packed. Many people went to mass every day. From the age of 12, I went to mass every day. My father went to mass every day before me. And I used to go with him to mass from 12, the age of 12 on before I go to school in the morning. So that's what I grew up in. And when you're in that bubble and you want to follow a spiritual path, which I did, um, if you're a man or boy, male, you go into the priesthood or the brothers. You become a, a diocesan cleric, which means you work for a bishop in a parish, in a diocese, or you join a religious order and you take on specific roles. You may end up out in the missions or you may end up teaching in a school or something like that. Um, if you're a woman, you go into the religious orders as well and you become a nun. And that was that was the society I grew up in. And if I wanted to follow a spiritual path, that's what I had to do. So that's what I did. And I didn't really ask any questions about it until I went through all my studies, which took nine years in total, and eventually became a priest in the Catholic Church in a religious order. And that's when I began to wonder what's next. If you like, that had been my goal. And now I'd passed that mark on the road. And now, now what do I do? Um, when you're in a religious order, you take a vow of obedience. And that means, well, you can interpret anyway. Like I have my own way of interpreting it, mind you, because I was quite rebellious. So being obedient really didn't suit me. But for those who were autocratic, it was a wonderful thing because it meant they could tell you what to do. So I got appointed to a school. They didn't discuss it with me beforehand if I'd like to do that or even the subjects I'd like to teach. They just said, you're teaching in this school, you're starting on September the 1st, and these are the subjects you're teaching. and These are the classes you're gonna be teaching. And I didn't like that. From the first day I started doing it, I didn't like it. And um, I grew more and more to hate it. Um, whereas, when school ended at four o'clock, I, I started my real work, what I felt was my real work, which was working with young people outside of school in a much more 
relaxed environment where we all did things together because we all wanted to do things, not because there was any obligation. Uh, I was still working spiritually with the kids. We had prayer groups. We had a youth mass. We had youth music. You know, we went on pilgrimages together. We went to Taizé in France, for example, took a bus and went away for one and a half weeks at Easter during the Easter break, things like that. So that's the work I like to do, uh, not the not the sort of work in school. And that led me to a personal crisis. And I found a way out of it, a solution to it by coming to live on a small island in the Atlantic Ocean where monks used to live many centuries ago. And that's Inishmore on the Iron Islands where I'm still living today. Um, and what drew me there, here, um, was this maybe rose-tinted glasses type view of the lifestyle of the monks who lived here. They came here to begin with in the fifth century, and they were still here, some of them, in the 16th century. So they're here for about 1,100 years in total. Um, a long time to have a monastic presence in a very small place. Um, but that idea of living out in the wild, in the Atlantic Ocean, very little shelter from the storms or the elements. There's a storm tonight as I'm speaking to you. Mm -hmm. I can hear it outside. Um, close to the elements, close to nature, and immersed in this ancient culture. Like these islands are so remote that the people here still speak the Gaelic language as their first language. And I, and I have to ask you not to interrupt, but as a Star Wars fan, how <laughs> how close in proximity to Skellig Michael are, are you? <laughs> There's a little church on our island called Temple Benin, and it's up on it's built on top of a hill. So you can see the whole island from from the from the uh, church. And it has puzzled archaeologists for many years because all of the early Celtic churches were built on an east-west axis. And this one isn't. It's northeast-southwest. Mm. And I only discovered recently that probably the reason it's built northeast-southwest is because it's therefore aligned with the Dingle Peninsula. And that's where Skelly Michael is. Wow. There was a whole community of hermit monks similar to those living on the Iron Islands who lived down on the Dingle Peninsula and, of course, out on Skellig Michael. So building the church aligned with that place, which you could see in the distance only on a good day, mm. that sort of connected the energies. There was that sense of connecting the energies or, or connecting the dots, if you like, yeah. you know, between the different communities. So, yeah, we're, we're about 100 miles as the crow flies from Dingle and from Skellig Michael. Amazing. Sorry, please continue. <laughs> when I think, but when I, yeah, when I think remote Irish island with the connection, with deep spiritual connections, I think of, I mean, of course, you know, as, as someone who loves Star Wars and who appreciated what uh, Ryan Johnson was trying to do with The Last Jedi and its sort of uh, deconstruction of Jedi dogma and uh, movie franchise canon dog dogma, uh, I loved that the, place he chose as the remote you know origin point of the jedi faith was an island and you know off the coast of ireland it was, it was, yeah. a, it was a big convergence of, of things that i love and i'm interested in so it was like it was that that was written for me <laughs> <laughs> yeah there was a lot of controversy here in the country 
over that film being made there because it was a sacred place mm. and the Irish people are very protective of our sacred places. Um, but it happened anyway. And of course, now the tourism out to it has trebled and, you know, quadrupled as a result. And the cost of getting yourself out there now is very expensive, even when you can go, which is not very often because the weather's too bad mm. normally. You can only go in the summer and you can only go in very good weather. So personally, I've never been there. Planned to be there, but never got there. But anyway, that's what drew me and that's what continues to draw me. Um, the Skelly Michael monks would have been practicing a type of Celtic spirituality which was heroic. So one of the challenges that um, these monks held to, to themselves was the challenge of being heroic in your life. And you, you could prove that in a number of ways. And one of them, of course, was to go and live out in a very remote place like that, an almost impossible place to live on. And, and yet they managed to do it. Um, so uh, my coming to live here in the Aran Islands was similar. Now, these islands, are Aran Islands, where I live, are quite flat. They're not conically shaped like Skelly Michael is. So <laughs> that, that type of challenge is not there for me. But two thirds of this island that I live on is bare rock. Wow. Um, and the third, that's not bare rock, has a very shallow coating of sandy soil, which is only about six inches deep. And a lot of that soil has been created by people who've lived here over the centuries, bringing up sand and seaweed from the shore and layering it out, building stone walls to protect it from blowing away again. Uh, so it's a very harsh, harsh environment. And yet spiritually it's extremely rich it seems like it always attracted people on a spiritual journey like even before the monks we have these ancient ring forts here we have dolmens here we have ancient standing stones here so these are all sort of relics of the spirituality of the native irish before they became christian and it was one of the unique things about this tradition is that when the Irish did become Christian, they did so of their own volition. Nobody came in and forced them to be. And they decided themselves they were going to add this layer of spirituality onto what they already had. So I think when you dig into the Irish spiritual tradition, you get a Christian version, you get a Celtic version of Christianity, and you also then get all the influences of the pre-Christian period on that. And that's what makes it so rich. Mm. And that's partly why I love to be here. And those pre-Christian traditions, you know, oftentimes the the counter view that you hear, right, is that Christianity appropriated some of these ideas or uh, used them as kind of lures to get pre-Christian traditions kind of under the Christian umbrella. I, I think a more optimistic, a more uh, inclusive, universalist kind of view is that it's a lot of similar ideas that are just expressed through different traditions. If that makes sense, like like I don't I don't see from my understanding of a lot of especially European pre-Christian traditions and the heart of what Christianity is about. I don't see as being in conflict, whereas. Yeah, when you get into that more sort of autocratic, hierarchical type organizations, you know, 
then sure you can you can you can see where it gets tied up into one culture kind of conquering another but yeah i think that's a, a really uh really interesting point that's that's worthy of, of further discussion the idea that that the irish people voluntarily embraced this new tradition when it when it hit the shores as opposed oh, yeah, to we, you know we're, we're conquered by it absolutely we, we have had plenty of examples of that here in fact if you take halloween um halloween is an ancient celtic festival that became christianized so at the I suppose it means the Eve of All Hallows, which means the Eve of All Saints. So that's the Christian name for the for the moment in the year. The the ancient name for it in the Celtic world was Samhain, mm. and it was yes. it was the end of the old Celtic year. You had finished all your harvest and everything had been gathered up and cleared away. Or or, and, or uh, Samhain, as we've Americanized. Samhain, it. as you call it there, yeah. <laughs> call it Samhain. Yeah. yeah, it would be the Gaelic pronunciation. Yes, and um. And the night of Halloween is the night which links last year to next year. So it's a night between the two years. And that, in the Celtic tradition, means it's a thin time. And to understand that, you have to sort of appreciate that the way these people thought was that there was this world in which you lived, and then there was an other world which you couldn't really, uh, you could sense and you could occasionally feel and touch, but it was outside you. It's like you're in the womb and there's a world outside you. And between the two worlds is a veil. And that veil gets very thin on a thin night like Halloween or at a thin place. So it probably was you know, pointing to an actual reality in our lives, which is that, you know, there are times and places in our lives where we, where we have more of a sense of the mystery and the wonder of life mm. than at other times and places. Um, so I think that's what it's pointing to. But Halloween night is one of those nights. Uh, and I think there's no doubt, maybe I can only speak for myself, but my family here this year, Halloween, we've all felt a little bit jittery um, my wife couldn't sleep very well I was waking up a few times in the night my daughter said she wasn't sleeping very well it was the full moon as well maybe that mm. has something to do with it the, the blue moon as they say too yeah yeah there's a sort of um, there are periods in the year where this can happen and Halloween in particular I think and so you know Halloween then that's the old sense of it and because it's a, a thin night a thin time it's possible for you to sense the other world more uh, strongly more powerfully than at other times of the year um, and so other world creatures can come in uh, you can disappear out we have actually had deaths on Halloween night by suicide here on this island mm. which really under, underlines it um, but equally you can have sort of maybe fearful experiences around Halloween um, and the, the ritual of it here is still practiced from the ancient times where you know trick or treat it's the kids that dress up but here it's the adults that dress up now the kids mm. dress up too 
but the adults dress up and you're, we're on an island with only 700 people so we everybody knows everybody here so when you dress up and you go out you have to do it in such a way that nobody recognizes who you are underneath the outfit and also you cannot say anything because they recognize your voice so there's this eerie you know on, on a good on a, on a Halloween night where, where there's no rain or and where there's a full moon even better you know mm -hmm. and you go out all dressed up as this other world creature it really does recreate the drama of what people believe to be the reality which was that on this particular night other world beings mix with human beings mm -hmm. uh, and it's ritualized in front of your eyes um, and then of course Christianity came along and they they Christianized it by putting the Feast of All Saints at this time, and also the Feast of All Souls, um, which is sort of, are sort of both versions of the other world as well. So that's an example. We have, we have a lot of other examples here. We have Holy Wells, which people still do the rounds of, and we have a bonfire night on Midsummer's Night, now called St. John's Eve, so Christianized, but still very pagan in lots of ways. You know, So there's lots of examples of that heritage still around even after all these hundreds of years. So in terms of your own journey, would you see it then more as kind of peeling back the layers of Christianized thoughts and ideas that had been maybe placed over top of these ancient traditions? Uh, or is there some kind of a, a synthesis still for you between those things? Or where do you sit as far as, as, uh, as that goes? Well, oh, I'm I'm very drawn to the Celtic version of Christianity, mm. but I'm equally drawn to all that was there before Christianity came along, which I think is very rich. I call it the Irish Old Testament, mm. all all the pagan myths mm. and legends, and we have so many of them. And not alone do we have those stories, those mythologies, but we have marks all over our landscape which in a, in a way tell those stories. You know, you have, you have the, the, the mound at Newgrange outside Dublin, which is older than the pyramids. And it's only one of quite a number of mounds in that whole area. The, the Boyne Valley is an amazing area of heritage. Um, and then all, all over the rest of you have a place called Ishnock, which is said to be the very center point of Ireland. And you find a large boulder there, twice at the height of myself. And it's regarded as the belly button of the goddess of Ireland, Eriu, who herself is the land of Ireland. So this is the very center point of her body, if you like. Mm. Um, and then there's, there's, there's stone circles, there's large standing stones. You have the great standing stone on the hill of Tara, where the kings, the high king used to live. And that stone is called the Leofoil, the Stone of Destiny. And the story around it is that when the next king needed to be appointed, all those who are eligible would stand around in a circle. And each of them in turn would walk up to the stone and touch it. And when the who, person who was to be the next king touched it, everybody would hear the stone cry out. And that's how they would know who the next king was to be, the Stone of Destiny. Um, 
So we're just there's so much richness there. I mean, this, I'm only just giving you a slight flavor of it. There's an awful lot of stuff there um, that I find very inspirational and very rich and very nourishing. And then to look at how uh, Christianity in Ireland managed to absorb all that and adapt quite a bit of it. And at the same time, at the same time, uh, hold on to the Christian narrative, but in a very different way to the way the Christian narrative was being spoken about in the rest of Europe. Mm. So you have the Roman narrative, if you like, which got so influenced by the Roman Empire that it became from being a sort of um, a diffused Christianity that allowed one to believe lots of different things. You know, you had probably over 100 Gospels. If you up to the year about 200, you had over 100 Gospels floating around. You had all sorts of letters, not just the letters of St. Paul, you know, lots of other letters floating around. And wherever you went, people had their own version of Christianity, including Ireland. Um, and then if you like, the politicians got involved and said, look, you're going to have to have one version of Christianity and then we can make it the religion of the empire. And so they defined it as the Nicene Creed and every other version then became unorthodox or heretical, including Celtic Christianity, which was accused of being what they called Pelagian. Pelagian. Pelagius was a, a, he was a Celtic monk. He wasn't Irish as far as we know. He maybe have been from Wales, but he was someone who um, traveled into the heart of the Christian empire to confront Augustine and Jerome and these people who are promoting the idea of original sin. Mm. Um, and the idea that, first of all, you were born in sin because you had the stain of Adam and Eve's sin on your soul, which was transmitted through the sexual act. And then the only way you could be freed of that sin was to have the sacrament of the church of baptism and so on, um, which meant you were absolutely tied to the church and to the sacraments. So mm -hmm. Pelagius was totally against that and preached that you could be saved without, without any sacrament of the church. You'd be saved by your own behavior and the church could support you and help you. The sacraments could support you and help you, but you didn't need them directly. And did this, did he still uh, you know ascribed to the the original sin idea or was that no 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 he 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 totally opposed that he regarded that i think as more or less an invention of augustine um so you know but pelagius was simply representing what most celtic christians believed and the celtic church continued to believe that long after Pelagius was condemned and disappeared off the scene. We don't know whether he was put to death or exiled or what happened to him. Um, but so the Irish church was always accused of being Pelagian. And um, probably right up to the Norman invasion. So we were probably Pelagian from the time of St. Patrick, which is the 5th century, right through to the Norman invasion, which is the 12th century. So that's 700 years. We were not just Celtic Christianity, but unorthodox Christianity, mm. if you like. Very different version of it. Mm. And, and and forgive my pop culture references, but I have very recently binge-watched the show The Last Kingdom, 
Are you familiar? Mm-hmm. It's, no. Okay, well, it's, it's uh, a historical fiction, but it's covering the, you know, the conflict between the Saxons and the Danes uh, as they, you know, as England was was uh, coalescing, and you know the main the main protagonist in the show is uh, a Saxon who was raised by Danes, and so he has this conflict of the early Christian beliefs and the beliefs held by the Vikings, and uh, and it's really fascinating in that sense again in, in terms of kind of stories I'm attracted to and, and what it explores and everything. But uh, so thus far, in I think four seasons of the sh- of the show, they haven't been to Ireland, but I- <laughs> but Ireland comes up uh, regularly in conversation as you know someone's just returned to Ireland or someone's going off to Ireland. But uh, it's, it's fascinating to, to see the juxtaposition and the collision of, as you say, this very uh, sort of Roman version. Of Christianity, and then this uh, Celtic feeling—you know, the Norse gods and, and paganism and that, and that sort of thing—because you often see, as it plays out in the lives of these characters, uh, not that the show is necessarily trying to say this, but maybe this is my own interpretation of, of those events and those characters. But all the ways that those faiths intersect and what they actually have in common, as opposed to the things that they. Uh, you know all the ways that they appear to differ so it it definitely stirs something in me as someone who's fascinated by all those different traditions Uh, you know it's hard to it's hard not to feel something when uh, you know you see a a Christian monk martyred and and crucified in the show or when you by the same turn when you see uh, you know a, a Danish Danish lord uh, charging into battle, uh, you know, telling his father to take his wife to Valhalla and he'll meet them both there. And, you know, just the way that uh, in those life and death situations that belief informs who you are and, and who the people before you were and who the people after you will be and, and you know, the meaning that it gives to these situations. Absolutely, yeah. Um in a belief, and I see that in the present day as well, in that the world we live in today is dominated by monotheism. Mm -hmm. It's either Christianity or Islam or Judaism, and one or two others as well are monotheist. But between us all, we dominate most of the world. Um, And monotheism is a particular perspective on life, which is very, I would call it homogenous, in the sense that there's only one God and he has to live somewhere and we, we tend to put him out in heaven. Our father who art in heaven, we put him very far away. And so I believe that this dominance of monotheism in the world today is at the root of why there's so much globalization going on. Mm. You know, we have this perspective which is global, which we get from the God we believe in. And that gives us full authority to treat the earth from a global perspective. But in the course of doing it, we're destroying the diversity that's in the earth. We're destroying the diversity of our own cultures, languages, 
um, ways of living, um, approaches to life, and of course we're also destroying biodiversity, all the diversity that's out in in nature, in in other living beings. Um, it's like we're totally lopsided um, by our belief system into promoting globalization as opposed to diversity. Whereas if you were to look at some of the more ancient religions, the Vikings, for example, or the early pre-Christian Celts, or the Romans, or the Greeks, or the Egyptians, there's so many others out there, all of whom had a whole diverse pantheon of gods and goddesses in which to believe. And so you had diversity built into your theology, if you like. And the way I think that worked was that you had these these gods and goddesses and the stories about them were similar to the Bible, but it was an oral tradition. So the stories about them were passed down from one generation to the next. But if your life hit a particular situation, you could find a god or a goddess within your belief system who perhaps in some way mirrored your situation. Mm. Like, like, just take, for example, the issues we have today around sexuality, gender. I think one of your last um, interviewees was, um, what was the name, Daniel Carslake. Mm -hmm. You had, had him on recently. Yes. And his whole issue was around um, the evangelical church and acceptance of gay people and so mm -hmm. on. Um, if you look at some of these ancient cultures and the stories that were carried in their oral tradition that reflected the life of their gods and goddesses, you find at least in some of them, I can't speak for them all because I'm not that familiar with them all, but the ones that I've looked at, you can get a reflection within that pantheon of gods and goddesses your particular issue mm. so for example in egyptian gods and goddesses you can find one of the gods who is sort of half male half female he's regarded as a male but he has breasts um and then you have in the greek tradition you have um hermaphrodites who is a combination of um, Hermes and Aphrodite, so a male and a female. So again, you have the gender issue, if you like, dealt with. Also, in the Greek tradition, I've discovered in particular, I'm sure it's true of the other traditions as well, you have issues like abortion, um, homosexuality, obviously, uh, contraception, all these issues which we've been struggling with in the Western world under monotheism. Mm. If in a way, in a way, they were sort of dealt with in these ancient traditions because you could find your particular experience in the experience of the pantheon of your gods and goddesses. See what I mean? And therefore, that allowed you to speak about it. It wasn't a taboo subject. Um, and therefore, it allowed you to deal with it. So, I think to me that's an example of how monotheism is so weak in the area, particularly of sexuality, but in lots of other areas as well. For example, because we only have one God in the heavens, where's the emphasis on community? Where's the emphasis on family life? 
Mm. Where's the emphasis on male-female relationships? Um, even procreation, the sexual act, none of that is reflected in the God we, we, we subscribe to or believe in. Whereas in, in the ancient Celtic tradition, there's wonderful examples of the sexual act, of procreation, you know, and of all the other things that can happen. And where monotheism tends to be prescriptive, tends to give you commandments, mm -hmm. there's, there's no evidence of that in these earlier polytheistic traditions, who I don't think were prescriptive at all. I think they were simply reflective of life. They, therefore, they allowed you to ponder it by reflecting on these archetypical stories, if you like, that came came through this uh, this theology that they had. It's very different. I think we've lost an awful lot by having monotheism, myself. I'm not saying we should go back to polytheism, um, but I'm saying that we need to question monotheism and see where we go from here. Hmm. Yeah, I love that. And, and, and the ancient Irish heritage helps me to do that. That's where I'm coming from there. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because you know, to play devil's advocate, no pun intended, <laughs> uh, you know, you, of, you often hear that monotheism was part of the organization that ushered in, you know, for for all of its many faults that can, can and have been deconstructed. The, the idea of the Abrahamic faiths, as it's been presented to me often, is that yeah. that was a series of progressive revelation that spoke to each culture at each time period, basically trying to rein in, you know, the worst of humanity in terms of the barbarism, the violence, the, uh, yeah. you know, domination, and that by having these rules and trying to order society in a way around different core values, as misguided as some of those values might have been, or as outdated as some of them might have been, that it was an attempt to protect and corral and you know, even when you, you know, for, for example, the argument that I've been presented often uh, by Muslims who believe in the hijab is that, you know, that this was a protective symbol to, yeah. you know, when there's Viking, yeah. when there's Vikings raiding your village, <laughs> you know, and, and what have you. Uh, by, the same, yeah. by the same turn, I think that there is an, uh, an argument to be made and has been made by plenty of that in Catholicism in particular the sort of deification of Mary and of the saints and so on, that that's a, a reemergence or a reassertion or whatever you want to call it of, of polytheism, that those were. Oh, I think it is. Yeah. Figures that just we needed for whatever reason. And yep. so even within yep. the confines of this monotheistic Christianity, we, we found ways to, you know, there was no matriarch. So we, we, no, one, we didn't allow know. them to have any sexual life, mind you. Mm. Mm -hmm. But other than that, yes. Yeah. So we, we took took aspects of the polytheism back through our saints and through Mary. Yeah. But we didn't allow them to have a sexual life. We got rid of the fun. <laughs> All the fun parts. Yeah. Well, for like for me, I think we need to we need to reestablish our sexuality as something sacred. And not just the sexual act, it definitely has to be treated as something sacred, but in the context of something much broader, which includes our gender and our identity, and also uh, our uniqueness. It, you know, 
since I've started to really work on this idea that we have neglected diversity, I have realized more profoundly, I think, that there's a reason why my children, and I have four of them, are all different to me or to my wife, their mother. It's an evolutionary reason. And what's and in, in it's it's become clear in this pandemic actually that when you create a vaccine, you have to test it on tens of thousands of people because it can have a different response in different people. Mm. And there's such diversity among people that you have to test it among tens of thousands of them before you can be sure it's not going to kill somebody. Um, so diversity among us humans is absolutely central to who we are. And that means that you are completely and utterly unique, and as am I, as are your children, as is everybody else that you meet. And therefore, when we approach this other person in our lives, we have to sort of, I think, have a sense of deep, profound respect that this other in front of you is different from you and is totally unique. You cannot sum them up. You cannot fully understand them or know who they are. They're a mystery, even to themselves, not mind to you and to me. And so that's what I mean by renaming the sacred in a way that mm. I think monotheism has failed to do. It has failed to treat sexuality as sacred, the sexual act as sacred. On the contrary, it has treated sexual act as sinful, really, when you boil it down. Um, but then in the broader context then to treat gender as sacred and to treat the uniqueness of each person as sacred. And what I find in Celtic Christianity is that they they did that and they had various structures and protocols and systems, put whatever word you want on it, uh, to express that in the way they organize themselves in their monasteries and in society in general and how they treated each person. I, I can go into that a little bit for you if you're interested, just yes. to give you some illustrations. Oh, very, very interested. But before you do that, I just wanted to say when you were talking about monotheism and the homogenizing culturally, you know, I'm struck by, uh, I'll turn 47 this weekend. So I'm, I'm old enough that on family vacations and such, you know, road trips, traveling, even in my 20s, uh, seeing different parts of America, let alone the rest of the world, but just just from city to city and state to state, there was much more of a sense of individual culture in different regions, you know, and yes. different things. And, and and as I've gotten older, you know, it, now it's I can tour around the country, and it's the same Starbucks, the same McDonald's, the same strip mall. This, you know, it, it's very homogenized culturally. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I, I, to think about that in terms of the way that that's worked with our ideas of the sacred, um, it, it seems that it's it's too small for a god or gods to, to contain. You know, you can't whatever all of this mystery is that's around us that's so much bigger than all of us and what we can perceive. The idea that we can contain it into a strict view that everyone should share. Just Absolutely, seems that's, ludicrous. that's the point. Yeah, yeah, it is ludicrous. Yeah, um, so what the Celtic monks did, if you notice, 
I, I, certainly I've noticed because I've been studying them. Um, while Europe and European Christianity was absolutely in conflict over orthodoxy from the time of Augustine onwards, um, and, you know, it became so bad that people who were heretics were burnt at the stake, uh, put to death, they were exiled, they were persecuted. And then you had, of course, the, the breakup of Christianity and you had all these wars going on between various sections of Christianity and conflicts between them all around issues of belief. And then if you compare that to the Celtic monks, there is no evidence of any conflict among the monks themselves or the monasteries in Ireland on the issue of belief. It's like, this doesn't interest us. We're not getting into that. Mm. Um, now, there are occasions of it when they went out into Europe that they were declared heretics by the Roman Church. Some of them were. In fact, there's a famous phrase that a number of them got slapped onto them. It was called Irish porridge. So if you, if you wrote something as an Irish monk that Rome didn't agree with, they declared it to be Irish porridge. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds delicious. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sounds good to me. Um, but in, in Ireland, there was none of that conflict at all around beliefs or orthodoxy. It appears to me that there wasn't anyway. Um, and it seems to me what the Irish monks or the Celtic monks were interested in was living with the mystery rather than finding the answers. So why did monks go to live in Skellig Michael? Not just because it was going to be a heroic thing to do, but also because it was going to place them at a very extraordinary place in the middle of the Atlantic, uh, open to all the elements, um, where it would be excruciatingly difficult for them to survive. Um, so, like, they're immersing themselves in the mystery. Mm. These, these Celtic monks were mystics. Uh, but a, a mystic is someone who prefers to have the experience of this sacred presence or whatever it is, this mystery, than to be concerned about answers necessarily to questions that arise as a result of the experience. So it's a very different approach. Um, so that would be one thing that I would emphasize in terms of the Celtic spiritual tradition uh, within the Christian element of it. The other thing is that when these monks came together in their monastic communities, every monk built his own hut. So within even the monastic community, you had a sense that everybody was treated as different and as separate. You had your own hut, your own individuality was respected. And also, these monks were encouraged to wander. And that's a word that's very much used in the Celtic monastic tradition, wandering. And they're actually taking their inspiration from Abraham. Mm. Back to Abraham, because mm. Abraham, at a certain point in his life, heard a call and he had to leave his home and leave the comfort of his normal life and go to a place where he didn't even know where he was going. He was going to be guided and he'd be shown in time where it would be. That's that's exactly what the Celtic monks practiced doing. They And they called it wandering or in, in Latin peregrinatio. And it, so it wasn't like I'm going to leave this morning and I'm going to head for that place, you know, two or three days walk down the road. Um, there was no sense of destination physically in their wandering. It was more a sense of following their noses, 
um, discovering what's out there that they haven't yet known, uh, coming across people and places and hanging around long enough in those places with those people in order to learn what they felt they needed to learn and then move on again. And so you see that practice uh, constantly written and talked about in the Celtic uh, monastic tradition, but you also see it in the stories of the Irish saints, especially those who went abroad. Um, I was in Sicily last year for my holidays with my wife, and we came across an old church. Uh, there are lots of them in Sicily, and this one was called San Cataldo. And I said to my wife, that sounds like an Irish saint. Hmm. I'm going to look it up. Hmm. And sure enough, the original version of his name was Cahal. C-A-T-H-A-L, but pronounced Cahal. And he had headed off from Ireland on one of these wanderings. And he eventually ended up in Rome, but didn't settle there and moved on again, ended up in Jerusalem, didn't settle there. Eventually got fed up with his wandering and said, I'm going to go home. And he got on a boat to sail back to Ireland. But the boat got shipwrecked on Sicily hmm. and he was washed ashore. And that's where he found his destiny, his true destiny. And he became, he became a, a very famous holy person in Sicily and they ended up making him a bishop. And, and he's now very well known as a saint all over southern Italy, not just in Sicily. So that, that to me was a good example, you know. And I even think of the interview you had with Daniel, um, Daniel Carslake, because to me, he's another example of someone who at a certain point in his life found his destiny by by accident in a way and mm -hmm. that's how these monks found their destiny by accident but they were looking at the same time you have to be out searching or you won't certainly find it and so they were out searching but they still didn't know where it would come from or how how they would find it or when they would find it it was still a mystery and i think in my own life i've experienced exactly the same like i have found when i arrived to the aran islands in 1985 i was 36 years of age and I knew when I got here, I said, now I know what my life is about. Now I know what I have to do. I've eventually found the place where I could put down my roots. The Celtic monks used to call that place your place of resurrection. Mm. And it's not a, not a bad word because it's, the, it's what you need to do in your life that makes you who you really are, where you can bring all your strengths, all your conditioning, all your background can come into play and you can find a meaning and purpose for your life that makes your life really fruitful and really fulfilling. And I found that when I came here. Uh, and certainly I didn't find it before. I was quite uncomfortable up to that point. So these are all elements of the Celtic uh, Christian tradition, which I find very helpful for even people today. Like the people I work with today are mainly people who call themselves spiritual, mm. but not particularly religious. So they may or may not still be attending church, um, but their real interest is, is in their own spiritual life and finding their own direction in their life, finding their own meaning out of life, finding their own purpose. Um, so I would perform ceremonies for them. That's usually, usually where I encounter them. I perform a wedding ceremony for them or a vow renewal or later on they might ask me to have a blessing ceremony for their newborn child and so on. That would be the sort of work that I do. And of course, I've written stuff as well, which they can make use of. So. That would be really my constituency, people who call themselves spiritual but not religious. Well, I, I'm certainly enriched by this conversation in multiple ways. And in fact, I look forward to the editing process, which I normally don't.
as an opportunity <laughs> to uh, to listen back through this more than once. Uh, and this is, I suppose, a very uh, Americanized Irish thing to say, maybe, but you know, given that traditionally uh, <laughs> Irish men in particular were, were, you know, were filled with these deep wells of emotion, but they're often cut off and reserved and, uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know, shoved aside and will maybe come out in the wrong way once in a while, but usually, usually not right there on the surface. I, I say that as a preface to there are a couple of things that you've said that I, I feel uh, literally moved by. Um, I don't know if it came up in the episode you listened to with Daniel Karslake or if you had an opportunity to, and I don't ever expect that anyone's listened to any prior episodes, but that idea of living in the mystery comes up over and over in these conversations for me. And, and that's been a big part of, of doing the work with this podcast is that, you know, after a lifetime of sorts of being a, a seeker type individual, you know, and, and that wandering idea, which also reminds me a bit of the indigenous idea of a walkabout or a, a vision quest mm -hmm. or something. Uh, but yes, exactly. But but constantly in this pursuit of a type of certainty, right? Like here's all here's life's big questions. I need to get some answers. Yeah. That in recent years I've turned this magnificent corner where the uh, the answer is in the question. That the mystery. Yeah is the answer and that charging full on into the mystery is is where the, the truth lies and those are those are phrases that i would hear you mm -hmm. know in my 20s and 30s and and be so frustrated by because it just sounded very hippy dippy and contradictory and uh not what i you know i wanted things to put my hands around and understand and uh man it's so it's so liberating and it's so much more fun this way <laughs> and uh oh, yeah to hear what what you're how you're explaining the the, the celtic mysticism working uh, it, it's really profound and it's really moving because it's it's so uh i i just feel you know this i, I hate even at this point describing it as a path because i hate the idea that there are those behind you on the path and people ahead of you on the path because it's not a linear straight line, right? But now it's your own path. Yes, and it, yes, perfectly said. And in, and in that context, I feel that this is the this conversation we're having is the exact right place in my path for me right now. It's yeah, it's pretty amazing. To, to, today I went out for a walk before it got dark. It gets dark here around five o'clock this time of year. Went out with my wife for a walk. I mean, generally walk down to the lake, which is about a mile and a half away. And on the lake today, which wasn't there yesterday, were six Hooper swans. Now, I know that those swans have flown all the way from Iceland mm. to, to land there today. And we've had a storm the last few days. And I'm just filled with wonder and amazement that they could have done that journey, especially in a storm. Um, but here they are and they come every year and they know the time of year to come and they know how long to stay and they know when to leave again. Um, so that to me is an example of like wonder and mystery is all around us, especially if we live out in nature or if we have nature surrounding us in some way, even if it's in potted plants or in pet animals or whatever, even in children and our, and our family and friends. I mean, there's wonder and mystery 
everywhere. But we can develop our sensitivity to it. And the more we do that, the more we immerse ourselves in that sense of the mystery and wonder of life. That's what these mystics were on about. And that's what mm. they were trying to do in their own lives. They were trying to enrich themselves more and more uh, with the mystery and wonder of life and not allow the shallow distractions get in the way of that sense of mystery. So that's why for them it was very important to live frugally and why they were so shocked by the lavish lifestyle of the clergy in Europe, mm. which was one of the reasons there was a lot of conflict between them because the Irish monks insisted that you had to live simply and frugally. And these bishops and clergy that they were meeting were all living in palaces and dressing, dressing in, in regal gear and so on, wanting people to kiss their rings. Um, so, you know, there was, that was another sort of tension, if you like, between the Celtic Church and the Roman Church. Um, so, yeah, um, can I just say something before we finish, if we are going to finish soon, um, just about my name and your name? Yes. You oh, I was I was going to bring us back. <laughs> it's, it's been filed because away. All four names between us, our first and our second, um, all bring us back into the roots of this Irish heritage. So if we start with your first name, Ryan, mm. you probably know some of this, but Ryan comes from the Irish word Rian and Rian. We still use it today in the Gaelic language. It can mean a mark, but it would have been used in the past to single out somebody significant so, or to mark them out as special. So we get the word re from Rian, which is Ryan, and re is a king, hmm. and a ban Rian is the wife of a king. Um, so you know, it's your first name. It's actually my mother's surname. Her name is Evelyn Ryan. My father's John Malloy. So she has it in her surname. So it's very much part of the Irish tradition, both as a first name and as a surname. So that's your first name. Your second name, Downey, comes from the Irish word Downach. And Downach is the word for Sunday. It's J. Downach, hmm. Sunday. The, this, actually, this I didn't know. I knew I knew a little okay. bit about King and Gaelic, but no, this okay. is all, this is brand okay. new. Daunach is spelt D-O-M-H-N-A-C-H. So it's a bit like Samhain. The N-H becomes a W. So it's Daunach. Um, and actually, that word is uh, orig originated in Latin as Dominus. Dominus meaning the Lord or the Lord's Day. De Daunach, it was the Lord's Day. Dominus, which became De Daunach, the Lord's Day. Hmm. Um so it's to do with Sunday, which could connect you with somebody connected with Sunday, which meant could connect your family with maybe a priest or I don't know. Somebody would have got that label, you know, which then was handed on from generation to generation. And eventually it got to you and you have that label now. So but its roots certainly are in Christianity and in Sunday worship one way or another. Um, so that they're your two names. My two names, Dara means an oak tree. Hmm. And an oak tree was the most sacred of the Celtic trees um, before Christianity. People would get married under the oak tree. It was a measure of uh, sacred masculinity. The acorn represented it. And you might see why. Mm. Um, <laughs> there were lots of other things. The, the origin of the magic wand comes from the top branch of the oak tree, mm. which is used to pull down blessing from on high. And the metaphor there is lightning. Um, thunder and lightning 
So you have all that connected with the oak tree in the pre-Christian tradition, and then it goes into the Christian tradition because you have Kildare, which is the famous monastery of St. Bridget of Kildare. So that's the church made of the oak. And you have Derry, which is a, a city in up in the north of Ireland, mm-hmm. which is there at Columkill, the, the, the oak woods of St. Columkill. And there are many other place names in Ireland called after after the oak wood or an oak tree or something like that because it was such a sacred tree in our tradition. So that's my first name, Dara, and it suits me very well as a Celtic monk and priest and druid to have that name because it connects me right into that ancient source of spirituality, if you like, represented by the tree. Um, And then my surname, Malloy, would have a similar root to a lot of other Irish surnames that you'll find in America, like Mulrooney, Mm. Mulcahy, Mulrani, Mulkerns. A lot of Irish surnames begin with Mul, as does mine. And Mul comes from the Irish word Mwail, which means bald. But it's not bald in the sense that you've lost all your hair. It's bald in the sense that you've been tonsured. Hmm. So, you know, the, the Irish tonsure for a monk was he shaved all the front of his head from his ear to his ear. So all the front of your head is, is bald. And then the, the rest of your hair from the from the midline back is long. So they look quite wild. Um, <laughs> but that that was the Celtic tonsure. So anybody who was tonsured could be called Mwail. And then the second part of your name, you'd be Mwail somebody. So it'd be maybe the person you were connected with. Maybe you were the... You're the monk, like Maya would be another word for monk. So you're the monk of the of the monastery of Finton. So you've been Maya Finton. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They connect you with the maybe with your abbot or with their founder or with the local king or something like that. That'd be the second part of your name. So my name Maya Leah, I like to think it means the servant of God or the monk of God because Dia is God. That's probably not the correct root of the word, but that's the way I like to think of it. So it's its root is somewhere back. So there's there's our four names. All four of them bring us right back into this ancient, rich Celtic heritage, both mm. the Christian element of it and the pre-Christian element of it. So that's one way back into the tradition. The, 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 well. This makes me even happier. Uh, I, have, I have two children, and uh, my son's name is Killian. Oh, and okay. with, with a C, which, as you, yeah. would, as you would imagine, living in California, we're often, yeah. often having to correct people that are mispronouncing it as Cillian or, yeah. or just yeah. looking at it and are completely confused. And, uh, you know, there's the actor Killian Murphy, who, of course, is Irish. And occasionally you can get people with that. Well, you know, like Killian Murphy. Oh, OK. Or, or I, have, I hear myself saying, you know, like Caroline, <laughs> like uh, there's a lot of words. Carrot. But um, yeah, this having this conversation makes me. Uh, does your son know the story of Saint Killian? Uh, he is seven years old. He okay. does not know it, but I, enough. I, yes, but I would I would love to know it if you if you if you. No, I can't would tell indulge you straight me. off. I'd have to. I I would have known it, and I think I might know bits of it, but I wouldn't be sure. I'd need to look it up again. But it's easy to find it. I will. You I know. will definitely look it up. It'll be there on the internet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. There was a very famous Saint Killian. That's for sure. Wow. Um, yeah, so this may, because that idea of connection and now, uh, the importance of, of, uh, continuing that and furthering that, you know, and, and their mom is, uh, Colombian on her mother's side and Mexican on her father's side. Um, and, and say, you know, and her parents were both immigrants. Um, 
and yeah, that idea that uh, my children get to grow up with that mix that of, of Irish and, and yeah. Latin. It's awesome. Yeah, it is <laughs> awesome. It is awesome. It'll, it'll give them a wonderful richness to their sense of identity. Yes, indeed. Uh, well, I, if you would indulge me, I would love to have you back <laughs> for very, very multiple very episodes. Very There's happy. a lot of things yeah. I, would, I would love to yeah. to get into further. And this is, a, yeah, it's such an area of interest for me. It's I already knew that going into the conversation and then coming out of it, it's just multiplied and gives me a hundred more questions. Um, I do want to ask you before we go, uh, just out of curiosity, are you familiar with a author and theologian by the name of Peter Rollins? I, the name rings a bell, but I can't place him. He, uh, his, his work uh, has a lot to do with, with mystery and a little bit of magic. And uh, he lives in America, but he's uh, from Belfast. Um, he's an Irish guy. Uh, yeah, I, I, I see just a lot of overlaps uh, in the work that yeah, each, each of you do. So, um, his work I've been very inspired by in terms of, of, of attempting to articulate this idea of messiness and mystery. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's what he's all about. And uh, yeah, and a lot of his work uh, involved parables of a guy called Seamus. <laughs> So there's yeah. a very, uh, there's a very Irishness to his, uh, okay. his talks and books and things. So might even be a, a cause uh, Pete's going to be on the podcast at some point. That might even be a, a joint interview or conversation yeah. to have at some That'd point. Be very interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, thank you so much for this. This is, uh, you know, it's going to be hard to focus on work today that I need to do because <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're starting your day. The wheels are yeah. turning. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yes, I would love to have you back on and I'll make sure in the uh, show notes and everything that people know uh, where to find you and, sure. uh, you know, the books and, and everything. Um, be safe there in the storm. I, I assume yes. you're very accustomed to them. <laughs> we are. And we're sending um, all the people of America all our blessings and light and wisdom over the decision that they make in the election. Hmm. But yeah, you know, we may, will this be, if Joe Biden wins, I should, I should know this before now, but I believe he'll only be the second Catholic president that we've had, right? Oh, he may, he may well be. That's probably yeah. true. John, a lot of Irish roots. Mm -hmm. His grandparents were Irish, I believe, or great grandparents. Yeah. And uh, yeah, John F. Kennedy was of course, um, our great Irish Catholic president yeah. prior. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we're very proud of here. Yes. Uh, I, yeah, I've, we uh, don't like to think of his sexual misdeeds. That sort of flushed his copybook a little bit, but other than that, yeah. yeah uh, that, and, and that's a whole other conversation I'd love to get into with you, is, is, how, yes. is how Ireland, uh, you know, outlawed abortion, yeah. but also legalized gay marriage. Well, we've now legalized abortion as well. Oh, okay. I, I, yeah. I, I need to I need to study up. I didn't realize that. that had... Yeah, no, that's all very recent. Uh, that's incredible. Um, yeah. yeah, I always find that found that fascinating about our people that uh, so yeah. pro so progressive in one sense and yet uh... we've swung. It's like the pendulum has swung, you know, from being hugely conservative to being hugely progressive. Yeah, we've come the full circle. Incredible. Uh, well, 
Yes, be be safe, and we'll certainly be in touch. Uh, okay. Much more, much more to discuss, and definitely yeah, would love look to forward have you to back. It. So, great. Yeah, nice talking to you. Likewise, thank you so much.